Welcome to the start of the fall semester for the Grand Rounds. Um, it is my privilege to introduce the speaker, Dr. Lebert, who is um, spent really his entire career working on uh, getting better ways to prevent cancer. So chemo prevention uh, is his career. Um, he has worked with animal models, with carcinogen-induced tumors, with uh, transgenic mice. He's uh, uh, worked with agents that inhibit COX-2, agents that inhibit EGFR, uh, aromatase inhibitors. He will uh, describe some of the recent results. He has had more than 350 peer-reviewed publications, especially the, the COX-2 work has been um, kind of, uh, cited extensively. However, when I ask him what he feels is the major contribution that he has made to science, he's, he's most proud of his work with uh, cytochrome P450 and phenobarbital inducers, uh, which is where we work together, and we have some of these papers are uh, with co-authorship. Um, how tumor promoters kind of uh, affect the process of carcinogenesis and whether they can be uh, markers of environmental risks. He is uh, the reason I'm here. Um, he was my PI when I came as a postdoc 25 years ago and he made cancer research interesting to the point that uh, I decided that it is worth making a career out of it. But he also made it fun, and I decided to stay here really as a result of working with Ron. Um, I have to mention that he does not have any financial interests. He does not intend to, invest, to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or a device. And he attests that he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity. So, Ron, it's all yours. I should give the normal question. Whoever can't hear me, raise your hand. Um, uh, it, a, it's a great pleasure to be here, and it's obviously been a great pleasure to know Constantine and then some of the faculty, and I'm probably really following more recently in Dr. Sporn's footsteps on chemo prevention. Uh, I will make two comments. One is a slight apology, but not, not much. I, I'm not really serious about it. It's that, you know, when I had my own small lab and we worked on the same thing for a decade, so you, you'd give a talk and six months later you'd change five slides in the talk. At this point, I'm giving, and this is true of this particular talk, um, I've never given the talk before, so but hopefully I know the data well enough. But then I'm going to make a comment to the students, and I, I don't think at all I am the ideal speaker. However, they, they always made a comment. They, they said to me, 
tell them what you're going to tell them at the beginning. Tell them and present whatever data you have. And tell them, again, as a wrap-up. And hope they remember small, some small percentage of what you've said. But really, the idea of telling them in advance, you're not, it's, it's kind of cute to have them go through a story, but you really want them to remember some of the basic take-homes. So oh, that was the disclosure. Yes, yeah, sadly, nobody's paying me any money. <laughs> um, so back to the thing, tell them what you're going to tell them. One, I'm going to talk about a variety of animal models and that have, in fact, HARAS or KIRAS mutations. And uh, some of them are somewhat similar to what you find in a human, some of them not. And um, many of the models I'll discuss actually are induced by organ-specific carcinogens. I'll throw that up. Um, uh, one of the comments that I do want to make, although I'll comment on it again, is typically what's out there in the prevention literature is people start early and they treat throughout the, the whole thing. And we'll, we'll make some comments about that. And then the, one of the other things that's very important, I mean, you might hope and expect that it's so, is if a given class of agents, and it doesn't matter whether it's NSAIDs, RXRs, whatever, are effective in a given organ, overwhelmingly, all the members of the class will. There may be some that are somewhat better or not, but you'd hope, in fact, you know, that an EGFR inhibitor is going to be an EGFR inhibitor and give you a similar response. So, so the models that I'll talk about, one of them is the MNU-induced ER-positive mammary tumors in rats. They look like highly, highly differentiated human tumors virtually a diploid ER-positive human tumor, which is relatively rare, okay? Uh, the one thing that they have, and, then, and I'll, I'll go through it a bit more, but they have uh, HA-RAS mutations in roughly 50% of tumors. And in fact, humans virtually don't, no, nobody has an HA-RAS mutation. So in that regards, you know, the model's imperfect. Okay, the AOM, uh, colon tumor in rats, okay, uh, de depending on who has done the, the, the data on figuring out mutations, because a lot of them were done some years back by RIF-FLIP types of things, uh, has been typically between 30 and 60% of them probably have KI-RAS mutations. That's what you see, in fact, in humans. And then, as you'd almost hope for, for colon cancer, most of them have uh, mutations in the Wnt pathway. Typically not actually APC, but beta-catenin, but it should give you the same net result out of it. The pancreatic uh, things that I'll talk about, and this I'll talk less about because I've done less of the work, 
um, uh, are either there's a way to induce it with nitrosamines in hamsters, or obviously uh, turbicins, you know, KIRAS model, it's a knock-in, okay? And then, uh, this one's kind of interesting, you can chemically induce lung tumors in AJ mice. Uh, overwhelmingly, they have KIRAS mutations, and the specific mutation and the specific amino acid substitution will differ depending on the specific carcinogen that you've employed. So it certainly is a way to generate uh, KIRAS tumors in the lung with potentially different mutations in there. Okay. And I, you guys don't want to hear about this and actually Dr. Spawn could do a much better job, but it's kind of interesting. In the old, old days, um, there was a great deal of work done of trying to produce chemicals that might uh, induce cancer. And what interestingly they found were a number of different uh, chemicals which tend to give you cancer in specific organs, azoxymethane, and the precursor to it, one, two, dimethylhydrazine, overwhelmingly give you colon cancers, can give you a limited number of other cancers. Um, this N-hydroxybutyl-N-butyl nitrosamine gives you a lot of cancers, both in mice and in rats, okay? Uh, this one is kind of wild. It's a, it's a nitrosourea, and even if you paint it on the skin, it gives you squamous cell lung cancers. Okay, I don't know the why of the specificity as to why you only see it. I don't know if there's anything about metabolism, be that as it may. But in any event, it's it's kind of interesting that they did come up with these very specific or relatively specific organ type. And the other thing that I wanted to point out to you is, one, in general, the uh, animal tumors are not nearly as genetically advanced in terms of amplifications and deletions, okay, as even a early stage human tumor. Theoretically, the human tumors have had long-term to grow, and you've probably done multiple selections. If the animal tumors come up fairly quickly, you're not even going to have enough time to, to, to reselect multiple amplifications or deletions along the way. Okay? So that is, is a generalized comment, and it's an interesting question. It's the, is that part of the reason we can get reasonably good efficacy uh -huh. in the animals against some of these things. The other thing that I'll point out to you is the, the phase three prevention trials. Okay, so that's the big trials. Tamoxifen trial, aromatase uh, inhibitor trials, uh, the uh, prostate trials, okay, have been five maximally seven years to a tumor endpoint. 
okay? Um, what that means is we're not doing in these trials a very early prevention. Either you think that's right or it's wrong, but in the practical sense, you're not. So you're seeing a somewhat more advanced lesion, okay? Um, whereas most of the animal experiments will start relatively early and continually. We have certainly felt that if you get striking efficacy starting early and continually, you really have a moral obligation to go in later and still see it because what's going on in the human, really, that's not the trial you'll run. So the MNU-induced, as I said, you can do it. It's in an adolescent rat. They get MNU tumors starting at uh, eight weeks later, and normally we'll sacrifice animals at 20 weeks after the carcinogen. Diploid, uh, about 50% of the tumors have codon 12 mutations in HA-RAS. And uh, if you go to the DMBA-induced tumors, okay, actually they have mutations in codon 61 with HA-RAS also, though. Um, the tumors are highly sensitive to the effects of hormonal agents, okay, as well you'd hope, uh, as Dr. Spawn. And we secondarily have also shown uh, the RXR agonists, and a variety of them have been profoundly effective in the model. Okay. Uh, and I'll present data with some of the EGFR inhibitors as well. It's been highly effective. And um, then I'll, I'll actually present some data where we've truly used an agent that's directed against the, the RAS mutation, okay, in this case, a transferase inhibitor. But the real take-home to this, and I'm not seeing it, okay, so this is data with multiple doses of tamoxifen starting probably five days after MNU and, and treating continually. And this is uh, uh, something called CERN-3, actually, Dr. Spawn had worked with it, or azoxaphene. And the main things I'm trying to show you is, A, you can get profound efficacy out of these agents. Both agents work very, very well. There may be some differences, you know, in PK between them. And a great deal of what I'm going to show you, we have not gone back, okay, to look at the tumors that grew out to see did they have HA-RAS mutations. When we do the Ponticeal transferase, we actually have that data. But the argument in general is going to be, if I've got something that's profoundly effective, then if 50% of my tumors on a regular basis are HA-RAS and 50% non-HA-RAS, I've got to be profoundly affecting both. Okay. And this is just to show you the aromatase inhibitor. 
Uh, and that works, and like I said, you'd hope in an ER-positive tumor that would work, and it does. And actually, the, this model was used some in some of the early development therapeutic studies relative, certainly both actually to TAM and, and to the uh, aromatase inhibitors. Um, then actually, uh, Mike and uh, some of the folks at Ligand did some of the early work with um, the RXR agonists, and uh, I'll show data that a number of different agonists work. And that, th this one is a little bit more interesting, because an aromatase inhibitor is kind of an aromatase inhibitor. Okay, it's going to inhibit aromatase. It's going to inhibit aromatase in any tissue it's in. The RXR agonists, as probably many of the receptor agonists, get incredibly complex, and the RXRs particularly, because what you're doing is you're activating the RXR or you're interacting with the RXR. Then it forms heterodimers with a bunch of different nuclear receptors, okay? And for some of them, giving the RXR agonist alone, uh, if you're looking at targretin, it'll turn on the PPAR gamma and PPAR alpha genes, as well as giving an agonist for those particular genes. But it, what it winds up is then you've got the heterodimer formed, you then have this heterodimer interacting with repressors and activators in different tissues. So probably very minor changes in how that fits may give you some real changes. So all of the receptor agonists with, with the nuclear receptors are much more likely to have some significant variation in what they're going to do biologically. And yet, interestingly, most of them have been consistently effective, okay? Um, and so, so actually the ones we worked with uh, besides targretin, so 9-cis-retinoic acid actually activates both the RAR and RXR receptors. The others are very much primarily RXR agonists, and the person we were working with, who was a you know retinoid chemist, made it off of a nine-cis backbone and sterically hindered it and, and, and the like. The real problem became when you had to synthesize it to try and do real clinical studies. This was inordinately expensive to make. Okay. And uh, the only thing I'm going to show here is, you know, targretin worked pretty well. Uh, UAB30, which interestingly uh, does not increase triglycerides, unlike most of these, uh, it has certainly some activity. And um, then I think uh, uh, one of these now... It's the form methyl derivative of this. And literally putting on an extra methyl group now gave you something 
that did increase triglycerides, and it was active also. The other thing that's kind of interesting about this is we looked at the effects, okay, and I'll come back to this with some of the other work, very short-term effects. We allowed a palpable tumor to grow up, and we treated for five days, okay? In this case, all we did with it was proliferation and apoptosis, okay? And in fact, so this was the overall effect on tumorigenesis, and this was the effect, the short-term effects. And in fact, doing that limited treatment, you could get a reasonable prediction as to whether things long-term were going to be effective or not. Okay, so that's taking the palpable lesion. The other advantage of that, although we did not do it in this case, we'll, we'll, we'll show it with a fine cell transferase inhibitor, is if you're thinking, oh, it might be different with a specific mutation I'm interested in, you can obviously sequence the thing and look for the mutation and see if there's any preferentiality to it. Um, so it turns out that the EGFR inhibitors, in fact, um, are highly effective. And, and we've published some on that. And one of the interesting aspects of that is, so this is an ER positive. No one's going to use an EGFR inhibitor to, to treat ER positive cancer. However, there is one neoadjuvant study, and that's the one by Polychronus that was in Lancet Oncology, and they actually got a fairly striking effect out of uh, the EGFR inhibitors in the neoadjuvant in ER positive. How anyone let them just use the EGFR inhibitor alone, I don't know. That's beside the point. There's actually also uh, some data on proliferation, which has been used as an alternative uh, method in ER-positive tumors. And in fact, the EGFR inhibitors had a greater effect on ER-positive tumors than on triple negative, which have much higher levels of EGFR. In fact, it sometimes was used early on to state what was likely to be a triple negative tumor or not. They don't respond brilliantly. And it even has a greater effect than it does to uh, then HER2 overexpressing tumors. Although there you might think you, you may be forming heterodimers between them anyway. Um, so interestingly, no, no association. We're going to present a little bit of data that you can dose weekly. The interesting thing about a weekly dosing, and that may be of more interest to, to people out here in general, not necessarily for the breast, is that there certainly is data in the human with the EGFR inhibitors that if you go to weekly dosing at seven times or even slightly more than seven times the daily dose, you profoundly decrease the toxicity. And the expectation, which is either right or wrong, is that you're only hitting it for potentially two to three days out of the week. And then you've got four days off. 
but it looks certainly in the animals like we're getting as much activity. And there's certainly clear evidence that there's reasonably strong activity in a human. This is on brain metastases. Okay. Uh, so this was uh, working with our latinib, and this was either uh, a once a week dose, uh, daily dosing, and the, the once a week was seven times the daily dose, or doing it, I think, two days on and two days off. That's the things we tried. It worked there. This just shows you gepetinib daily dosing. And then we've gone to um, weekly dosing. It looks somewhat weaker, okay? Although I will say this, lepatinib probably has a terribly short half-life in the animals. Uh, I suspect when we're not getting, uh, you know, high enough dosing for more than, you know, a day and a half out of seven, okay? Gefitinib, and we, we published on the erlotinib data, with erlotinib after two days, we're below serum levels that should be effective enough to inhibit EGFR phosphorylation, and yet we're seeing most most or all of the activity. Uh, so we did a little bit of work, and this is specific then with a pharmaceutical transferase inhibitor. As I told you, 50% of the tumors have uh, HA-RAS mutations. And if you go to a high enough dose, you'll, you'll knock out both the HA-RAS tumors and the non-HA-RAS tumors, and it's that there are a whole lot of phonesylated proteins other than, other than RAS, okay? And presumably, if you go up to a higher dose, you'll, you'll get them. But there certainly is specificity to it. Um, uh, and actually, let me just go on to the data. So the, this was the dose dependency. It, it's not so perfectly clear in this that, uh, you know, that there's a very, very sensitive group that half of them dropped immediately. Maybe if we teased it out, we could see it, uh, although it's probably discussed. But here we actually went to palpable lesions, okay, and then started treatment. So we're letting the animal develop palpable lesion. We're surgically excising a small piece of the tumor doing an HRAS mutation on it, and then suture it back, wait two days, and start the pharmaceutical transferase, okay? And then we're following what it does. And the main point is, if you have an HRAS tumor, okay, basically all of them regress. Uh, I guess I think one out of six is not completely regressed. When we get into the non-HA-RAS tumors, okay, we, we get a much more variable response out of it. So even though we think, you know, this is just kind of a carrier mutation, we, we certainly don't think this is per se what drove it, because obviously 50% of the animals had tumors that had no HA-RAS mutation, and they show the same kind of tumors, and they all respond to the other things. Um, we were able, okay, that its presence was sufficient to make those tumors much more susceptible. And 
basically we did some short-term assays. So in this one, we're going to sacrifice the animals. Okay, we're going to develop palpable tumor, treat for a limited time, pull it out. And we've either got uh, control or, um, or the treatment with the parnassial transferase at two different doses. So the thing that you see here, and this is the HARAS tumors, the non-HARAS tumors, so we did sequencing on it, is you certainly get a much more consistent effect in the HARAS tumors, either in inhibiting proliferation or increasing apoptosis. But you're seeing the effect actually relatively quickly. You see it at 36 hours, and then still four days out, you still see the effect. And like I say, the nice part of doing that type of thing, uh, you know, a surgical type of approach to a tumor, is if you have a specific mutation or specific, you know, uh, chromosome changes that you want to look for, you can characterize them and see if there are real differences. The thing that I'll point out, you know, we, we got complete regressions here. Um, the changes show up quite quickly, but certainly both the proliferative and apoptotic uh, increases are continuing through some length of time here. And if you really think about it, they've got to be continuing. Otherwise, you're not going to get complete regression of a whole tumor, okay? So it's not just a quick wave of apoptosis, and that's a loss. You're having that process going on, okay? Uh, so the, the other thing you can do out of it, and it's, you know, we've published the work, but you can obviously take those lesions and start to do uh, you know, array analyses and, and looking at the changes. And what you do see is the gene changes in the uh, HARAS tumors, you're getting a number of the proliferating and uh, proliferation-related genes. Just as I showed you, overall KI67 went down profoundly in those, and you're seeing decreases in TOPO2A and PCNA, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> So you can start to do that. Um, okay. In the colon cancer, as I said, induced by AOM, so you give male F344 rats uh, azoxymethane, okay? They develop over some length of time, probably normally they're looking at 40 weeks out. Um, uh, minimally invasive tumors of the large intestine. Uh, the preponderance have uh, mutations in beta-catenin. And I'll just make a comment in general. I think if you're working in a, an organ where you have a driving mutation, be that in skin with UV-induced P53 mutations, or in colon with APC or pancreas, KIRAS, <laughs> it's going to be much easier to make a reasonable model, okay? 
in, in an animal. Because if you put in the driving mutation, then already by definition, it's not bad. Okay, may not be perfect. It may not be what you can, what you optimally like to do for therapy. Okay, but remember, we're going to do blind trials in prevention. Okay, we're not going to have the tumor sitting there. So you want to make models that you think are generalized. Okay, and somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty percent, thirty to fifty percent have mutations in KIRAS. And interesting, and I haven't really shown it, but there are aberrant crypt foci that come up first, okay, when you treat rats and mice with AOM. Uh, they overwhelmingly have KIRAS mutations. The feeling is they're probably not the precursor. Because the, the colon cancers absolutely have to have something or an alteration in the Wnt pathway. But those things exist out there. I just mention it if anyone's interested. Could you use that? I mean, people have, have done some work with it. And I'll leave it at that. I'm not sure I consider it ideal, because I'm not sure it's on, really on the pathway. But that's a different argument. And um, what I'm going to show you is that a number of things work very, very well in that model. And again, partially by implication, but there's one slide <coughs> where they did sequencing. The implication is it has to have affected both the, uh, the mutated and the not. Oh, so the only thing I can say, you know, we've worked on this endlessly. I'm going to show you one slide. And, and very often, you know, well, what is it doing besides obviously inhibiting COX? You know, is that what's driving it or not? And very often people go into cell culture and they're up at the millimolar range. And the highest you get in an animal or a human, you know, is 30 micromolars. You, you're wondering, well, what does it mean anyway? Like, so we, we did, and I'll, I'll just show you the data. It looked like in uh, some of the NSAID-treated um, colon tumors in mice that we're getting a, a very heavy immune infiltrate. And that gives us a slightly different mechanism than we've certainly, it, it, I presume, is strictly related to COX inhibition. That's a different argument. I, I presume that's secondary. So, so, so because a lot of people will tell you, oh, it's not Cox and the like. What you have to understand and you're going to have to argue against is the fact that these multiple agents of varying structure, okay, all are highly effective. They all overwhelmingly inhibit COX-1 and 2, aspirin certainly at the lower dose, preferentially COX-1, silicoxibid at a somewhat lower dose, COX-2, and all the others inhibit everything. If you want to say, I think I'm being driven by things other than COX inhibition, then you've got to say, why am, gonna, why am I going to have off-target effects, okay, from such a structurally diverse group of compounds. 
uh, we, we went through the argument in, in the paper there as to why, you know, go through it more systematically. The other thing I was going to say is, and, and we argue it in the paper, Celecoxib is never any better than any of the others. There's one paper that's totally screwed up the field as far as I'm concerned. So it looks like most of the time uh, varying NSAIDs at roughly the human equivalent dose, okay, uh, inhibit multiplicity, you know, 80% or so, and the tumors that grow out on average will be smaller. Anyway, it's not like we're getting a real clear resistance there. So the paper that I, I think is damned the fields forever uh, was the first dose. And if you do the same human equivalent dosing, just on saying, I've eaten so much, and what's my FDA scaling factor type of thing, okay, this is way, way over the human dose. Okay, and the first time they did it, they got a 97% effect, and the other guys are down here at 80%. Now, both, all of them are highly, highly effective, okay, but people wanted to interpret, oh, there must have been something radically different if you had virtually complete inhibition of COX-2, okay. Well, when we repeated the study, and it's published, but no one likes to quote it as much. In fact, it's much more in line with all the others. And in fact, if you drop it down to the human equivalent dose, it's probably ever so slightly weaker than most of the other NSAIDs. Okay, aspirin's a special case in the animal. You've got to go to very high doses of aspirin. And I don't know if it's purely PK. I don't think so. Because at lower doses, we can certainly inhibit thromboxane. Um, but, but here they actually did, um, and this was work done by Reddy many years ago, they actually looked for mutations in there. And what you found, and I have to look, Okay, I've got to think about this for a second. Um, so this told you the percentage of rats with tumors, and this probably was the number of, of animals in the group. Okay, and so they came up with a calculation of about 60% or 65% had codon 12 or 13 mutations in KI RAS. And that's somewhat higher than the human, but the human would probably be in the neighborhood of 40%. And that's true even at the adenomous stage, okay, in humans. Um, if you then give paroxicam, okay, you profoundly decrease the number of tumors. There's such a limited number of tumors, I doubt that these two are different, but at the very least, we're not allowing those to be the only ones that grow out. We're obviously markedly inhibiting them. Maybe there's a very slight preference against them. But the answer is, in this model, if we're going in early and continually, we're seeing this effect. The DFMO is a very high dose that they use, okay? And there were, there were very few surviving tumors. But again, it looks like that was effective. So my main point was, 
there are agents that certainly in the animal models, okay, um, could inhibit, obviously, KIRS and non-KIRS uh, tumors or prevent them, okay? Uh, actually, the, that combination of an NSAID plus DFMO um, has been used clinically by Maskin some years back. Unfortunately, we don't have the individual arms, but there was a combination study, and they decreased overall polyps by uh, 65%, which is much, much better. The aspirin, the aspirin data on overall polyps is probably 25%, okay, and a decreased more advanced polyps by more. The numbers are tiny. So I don't want to say, but actually that's been quite consistent, okay, that the NSAIDs and I think even calcium and the like have given you a greater effect on the more advanced lesions than on total lesions, okay? And we certainly hope and expect that those are the ones that really do count. The problem of using that as a primary endpoint, this plastic lesions is, yeah, typically it's about one-fifth of the adenomas that come up. So all of a sudden you've got to use a lot more people in it. Purely practical. Um, and this is what I was going to say to you recently. Uh, uh, one of the collaborators in an AOM mouse basically found the tumors that grow out with silicoxib, and the same was true of naproxen actually had a great many infiltrating CD8 cells at the end of the study. These lesions are certainly smaller, and this is looking at the end of the study. Okay. Uh, so one of the things actually to reduce toxicity, I had mentioned the weekly dosing of the, the, the kinase inhibitors. Um, is the possibility of dosing intermittently. And what we looked at was three weeks on, three weeks off. We initially did it, and that's published, in a bladder model where the NSAIDs work fine. And three weeks on, three weeks off is as good as, as continual. And the main thing is the gastroenterologist will tell you their expectation is that in three weeks on and three weeks off, we will profoundly decrease the gastric problems. Okay. And the answer is it seems to work in the colon model as well, where we said, you know, half the tumors probably have KIRS, we have not sequenced, but it looks like the on-off is roughly as good as the other. So we think it's a way to potentially approach using these things. And, oh, this was the aspirin data. And it worked with aspirin. But the problem is we're at a very high dose of aspirin to get it to work in the animals. And that's been pretty consistent in a number of models. I'm not sure if it's purely PK, but I'll leave it with that comment. OK, so we've gone to two ways that might decrease the other thing I'm going to talk to you then about is lung tumors induced in mice by a variety of carcinogens. And I'll show you that they give specific mutations. We um, 
put a dominant negative p53 mutation into the model on an AJ background, and you're going to induce many more adenocarcinomas. Okay. Actually, you'll partially get more adenocarcinomas, and we've used it, and Mike has used it, using vinyl carbamate. But with, with the p53 mutation, we're, we're getting found number. So, uh, so those are the compounds, and I'm showing you here, vinyl carbamate primarily gives you, okay, 61st codon mutations. Benzpyrene, okay, 12th codon. And both of these agents, which will give you primarily either NNK, tobacco-specific carcinogen, or MNU that we use to induce tumors in the breast of rats, methylate the target organ, and they both give you the same mutation out of it. But as I said, it gives you a way to induce mutations in different, in different places. And this just showed you that either when we did it in the, um, in the standard AJ, which is in yellow, or if we had the P53 dominant negative so that a fan number of these tumors are then um, are then adenocarcinomas. We're seeing the mutations in the same spot. We're on an AJ background, both of them. And um, so, like I say, we put in a dominant negative P53. There's only three copies of it. Um, and I'm going to go on. It basically it just shows you that in the uh, in, in the, uh, this is a higher magnification, but we're getting something that, that, that looks clearly like an adenocarcinoma in those animals. So the thing I wanted to point out to you, and this is maybe the extreme, but if you go and you start looking at amplifications and deletions in the AJ adenomas, okay, the one you find is in chromosome four in a certain percentage of the animals, you know, roughly half. I think that's at the inc 4 a locus, but I won't even swear to it. When you go to, and so that's a deletion, okay? When you go into the adenocarcinomas that we've generated, you're getting all kinds of chromosomal changes. And the very, very consistent one is in the sixth chromosome. Oh, why is there something that looks like there's no changes? They, they had to pull out the material from a frozen tumor. And I don't know if they pulled out an early adenoma that had nothing or not. These were not fixed. This was done years ago. So. In any event, I, I think that's the reason we, we saw a lesion that, in fact, had no changes. Like, um, and my, my main point about it, so this actually shows you, and okay, uh, what either 
the lung of a normal animal that was treated with I, I think it was Venspirin, it's probably on the next slide, okay, or a P53 mutant. So you can see here, okay, even on the surface, the tumors are much larger and there's more of them. And then if you treat it with a glucocorticoid, okay, and these are all KIRAS mutant tumors, you profoundly decreased it both in the normal animal and in the animal with the P53 mutation. Okay, so the efficacy against these KI rafts, uh, I will have tumor volumes here. So this was a treatment with, with uh, I think actually it's budesonid that was used as a oh, benzopyrin incidence. Um, if you had the uh, P53 mutation Okay, that, that's in 4A wild type, although there's some data on that in the paper. Okay, um, you had an increase in uh, the number of tumors, an increase in the size of the tumors, and budesonid worked either way. Okay, uh, okay, and that one I just have the 1 to 18. I'll, I'll come back with the others. but. A whole variety of glucocorticoids work. Dexamethasone works. Budesonid works. There's a variety of others. So it's what we see kind of consistently through the models. Members of the class tend to work reasonably well, certainly when you're getting an agent that's highly effective, even though we haven't truly optimized the dosing for each. We might be saying, hey, we're going to go at the human equivalent dose or whatever, but we're not sitting and trying to do PK on this, okay? And, and, and given that they're, a lot of it's done by feed, you can't do serious PK on it. Anyway, you'd have to be garbage. And the RXR agonists work, and I think in there I also said, and that's what... Um, what Mike had found also with 268. And again, we're pretty consistent. So this one is starting later. Let me see just one. So that was so this is starting earlier and continually, but we didn't wait as long. We sacrificed them at 12 weeks. And Targretin, which is overwhelmingly an RXR agonist, you know, is relatively effective. We then started, and at this point, the animals would have clearly pre-existing lesions. They, they, they'd have multiple adenomas, and they'd probably have uh, potentially some micro-adenocarcinomas at that point. But the answer is you can still get some relative efficacy out of it. Okay. The, the, the last... The last thing, I'll wrap it up in about five minutes, is we've also tried the weekly dosing with a number of different tyrosine kinase inhibitors in the AJ model, okay? And we treated it with vinyl carbamate. So the, the compounds are XL147, which is a pan-PI3K inhibitor actually with a rather long half-life. 
Okay. The second is the MEK inhibitor. The AZD is the MEK inhibitor. And actually, it has a very short half-life. In humans, it's given twice a day. And it probably has a half-life in the animals of less than two hours. Okay, so it ain't around for long. Okay, and then Jafitinib, the GFR inhibitor, probably a half-life in the neighborhood of three to four hours. You, you don't see much. The, the only one that looks somewhat effective here, okay, is the daily dosing with the MEK inhibitor. Although even there, it probably got effective doses for only four hours out of the day. But that's enough to see some reasonable efficacy. The one that's kind of interesting is the other two. And it turned out that either giving, okay, the XL147 or Jafitinib, okay, on a weekly basis, or even weekly intermittent, so we gave three weekly doses, or for three weeks, three weekly doses again, are actually seeing some reasonable effect on tumor load out of it. So I think it really brings up this question of will this weekly dosing, in fact, be applicable to some reasonable number, not just to the EGFR1 inhibitors, but to a variety of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And obviously, Dr. Miller has published some work on, uh, I think, PI, on the PI3 kinase inhibitor. So, and, and we've seen it for an AKT inhibitor. And the thing that makes me optimistic that will probably reduce toxicity for those compounds as well is a number of them are causing acneform rashes. And if we're losing that toxicity with the EDFR, and it may be because of downstream, then I'd hope we might have an effect but one should see. But it's actually a pretty straightforward clinical experiment just to determine whether you've reduced toxicity because the toxicities are so common and show up so early. Um, and then the last thing, and this is really taking data from someone else in the group, but I thought that the, the, the pancreatic people would be interested. So this is the model that was developed by Turvison. Okay, where you go from panin lesions to invasive adenocarcinomas, probably over a 40-week period. And um, what it turns out is, okay, what I hope is, oh, th th this is what counts. So this is Vicophilone, which is a dual a LOX-COX inhibitor, but then we, we actually have data with NSAIDs and pure COX inhibitors. And so the answer is you can get, so, so actually, you can look for efficacy. I'm not arguing that's the way you should look. That's the way they partially did look, although they then did pathology on it as well. You can look by the weight of the organ at the end of the study, because overwhelmingly, the increase in weight is due to the, due to the tumors. But they did, complete they, they did complete pathology. And so as you can see, if you get to a high dose of, uh, of this 
mix Cox locks, but I think we're overwhelmingly just seeing Cox inhibition. You get a fairly striking effect out of it. Uh, here they actually used uh, gefitinib at a dose that's pretty close. Actually, it's below the standard human dose, not profoundly. But the answer is, again, gefitinib alone is highly effective. The combination is profoundly effective. I'd almost like to see somebody try whether the combination might actually work in some kind of graft in the pancreas, just because the data is so striking. And I think by using, you know, uh, intermittent dosing and or weekly dosing, uh, we, we might get away from some of the toxicities. So the interesting thing is, you know, when you do it in combination, you worry a little bit with a weekly dosing. Well, does it have to, you know, is my EGFR inhibition going to have to be there continually? At least in a couple of the animal models, that doesn't seem to be the case. So I'm not sure what we've really picked out. What we've picked out is two agents or classes of agents that are effective. And we haven't said, hey, are they going to synergize when they're both there? I think we're getting an effective agent, another effective agent. And you put them together, and you get something quite striking out of it. So that's, that's oh, the last one I was going to mention, because it's none of our data, is in the DMBA-TPA model, they get HA-RAS mutations on, the, uh, on the, the skin. They get some number of skin carcinomas. And, and the only thing that's kind of interesting, because it, it fits a little bit with the breast data and the colon data, the agents that are highly effective are, you know, NSAIDs and, as a matter of fact, DFMO, and then, as you might help, a pharmaceutotransferase inhibitor. But the interesting thing is if you do UV-induced skin tumors, they're inhibited by um, NSAIDs and DFMO again. So in a number of these, we have seen that some of the agents that work seem to be more or less organ-specific. And whether you have a mutation in RAS or not, if they're highly effective, they're still highly effective. OK, and I don't know. I, I think the open question is, is it because we're just not as genetically advanced? And that may be the case. But it gives you some examples. I really didn't do the work. It's done through contract uh, program. Um, although I was involved heavily in doing most of the writing and, and getting things organized here. And um, the people who did the work, uh, Dr. Grubbs did the breast work. Bander already has uh, died uh, some years back. Uh, he, when he was American Health, did some of the colon work. Ming, Ming Yu and his wife, Yan Wang, uh, did most of the lung work. And actually, the, in, the intermittent dosing in the colon was done by Dr. Rao, who initially worked with Dr. Reddy and is now with the other. And that's it. So I thank you for your attention.
in, in the interest of time, if you have any questions, I mean, you can probably come down and uh, speak with Dr. Lovett. So yeah, thank you, Ron. Fine. Thanks.